Welcome back to Inside College Admissions, a podcast presented by SCORE. I'm Elena, and I'm here with college expert and former Dean of Admissions, Peter Van Buskirk. As part of our family bootcamp miniseries, we're breaking down big college planning topics into five digestible episodes for the whole family to listen to, but especially for our parents or guardians out there looking to learn more about how to support their student. Our goal with this mini-series is for supporters to feel empowered with knowledge and more ready to take on this process. So this is the fourth episode in our mini-series, so if you haven't already, definitely take a listen to the previous three episodes. In our first episode, we talked about the keys to getting started with college planning. And then in our second episode, we discussed why course selections matter in the college admissions process. And in our most recent episode, we answer the to test or not to test question with strategies for managing the SAT and ACT experience. In today's episode, we'll be giving you tips for building a productive college list. So we'll discuss when you can advise your student to begin exploring colleges, how many colleges your student should apply to, and also the kinds of colleges that students should have on their lists. It's a really great episode, so let's dive in. Hi, Peter. Hey, Lana. How's everything? Everything's great. How are you? Well, not too bad. Not too bad. I'm eager to talk about college some more. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I'm especially excited for our topic today. We'll be talking about building a productive college list. So I think my first question, Peter, is when it comes to the high school journey, at what point in a student's high school career should they start exploring colleges? That's a good question. And and in an earlier podcast, we talked about when's a good time to start thinking about college. And, and at that point, I, I focused on the importance of reflection rather than being destination-oriented right away, be student-centered. But I think the point of this conversation is to, to take it to the next step. Once we've mm-hmm. done that reflection, when does the student need to begin to, to look out at finding colleges? And I think that, again, I referenced then that, that, is, that the best time to start is when the student is ready, but no later than end of the junior year, particularly with regard to looking at colleges. But I think that that's, that's when a college list can begin to materialize. And I say that realizing that many parents have probably been carrying that list of colleges in their head for years. <laughs> uh, they, moms and dads, you got to kind of chill a little bit <laughs> because it's really important for your student to be able to discover for him or herself those places that, that make the most sense. And, and there's a good chance that they might end up including the number of schools on their list that you have in mind for them as well. But I think that it's it's important that they have the opportunity to explore. And then we talked earlier also about the notion of window shopping, getting a sense of what's out there. I think that to begin with a targeted search on particular schools right off the bat can be very limiting to the student's understanding of what the possibilities are. Now, certainly, if there are schools or colleges and universities that are nearby and easy to visit, whether they're prominent on the on the potential list or not it's just, it's not a bad thing maybe just to give your students some an introduction to the process by uh, <laughs> going out for a tour and an information session at, at one or two of those local schools but then begin to to imagine some spring break trips or winter break trips or summer trips that, where you can look at clusters of schools in different geographic regions. And uh, again, go with the idea to see what you can see rather than to feel like you have to make a, a, a buy, if you will, a buy decision right off the bat. Mm-hmm. But I think that if, if you allow this this kind of window shopping approach to to develop organically, that you may end up looking at 20 to 30 schools, which is fine. Imagine the kind of insight that a student can gain from that sort of exposure 
Now, it seems like a lot, but uh, when the student can have that kind of uh, understanding of, of different types of institutions, it'll enhance her decision-making later on. Definitely. And it sounds almost like you're going from macro to micro over time, with the macro being seeing all of these schools and having that list be about 20 to 30. And over time, once the student starts to learn what they like, learn what they dislike, notice patterns in college visits, that list will dwindle down is what it sounds like. Well, yeah, I think when you, exactly, when you see the patterns uh, beginning to emerge and you focus on on those patterns that make sense to you. And and, and by the way, I, I strongly recommend visits to many different kinds of schools because even a visit that ends up with you getting in the car saying, eh, that's not for me, that's a worthwhile visit. Now you know what you don't like. Yeah. Uh, and when the student can articulate what's not quite working for him at, at, at that particular place, that that's a bit of valuable information to carry forward then. Absolutely. But you're right. You start with a, a long list. And then my strong recommendation is that by the end of the summer prior to the senior year, the student is, is now narrowing that list down to maybe eight or 10 schools. Okay. Well, so that that difference, you know, 20 to 30 to eight or 10, 20, 30 sounds like a lot of mm -hmm. colleges. Can students apply to all of those? And some will try. <laughs> <Don't> <laughs> apply to all of them. And it's, it's crazy, really. Uh, and I'll explain in, in a moment, I think, why eight to 10 is a good number. But there, there's been such a proliferation in some families uh, or some with some students in, in terms of the number of applications that submitted that I hear of students applying to 25 or 30, even more. And that's crazy because that's not being terribly thoughtful or uh, mm -hmm. intentional in the process. What's, what's happening there is the student is casting out a lot of lines, if you will, to see if there'll be any bites. And right. uh, when you think about it, a lot of selective institutions in particular are maybe going to notice that the line's in the water, but they're wondering why, you know, if the student hasn't really made a good connection with the school, if the student can't prove the synergy between his interest and in, in the school's ability to meet those interests, all those lines in the water are go for, going for naught. So there's a certain amount of ego involved, I think, with, with applying to a lot of schools, see where I can get in. But I don't think it's a very productive way to approach the list development. Yeah. So... With all of that, I mean, what is the right number of colleges that a student should apply to? Yeah, I, I think I think eight is a good number. And, and sometimes people cringe when I say eight. They're thinking, well, what about this? What about that? And they they, they all of a sudden they're imagining that they're their list of 20. How am I ever going to get down to eight? Well, if, if you're thoughtful about the process, you can do it. But here's here's why eight. If the student cares about doing a good job with an application, and that's, I think, an important underlying consideration here. Care about doing a good job. In other words, you've worked at building a relationship. You can articulate well why that place makes sense to you when you apply for admission. That's going to take a lot of work. Mm -hmm. There's not only the main essay, if you will, 650 words that the student's going to have to write, but many of these selective schools are going to have supplemental essays, two or three or four supplemental essays, mm -hmm. that, in my opinion, are now counting more in the process. They're more valuable in the process to the admission officer than the main essay. So, you know, for a student to be able to do well with all of those essays for eight colleges will feel like another advanced placement class on top of everything else in the fall of the senior year. Just imagine the weight of it all. You, you add many more schools and add another advanced placement class. Again, if you care about doing a good job. And I've seen a lot of kids start the process 
full of vim and vigor, ready to dive into, you know, their dream schools and, and they'll, they'll work on applications, finish them up. And, and now it's the middle of September and the, they'll feel like they're all set. Well, and I point out to them, well, you still have all these other places you need to con- consider. <laughs> and, and they're, they're kind of spent emotionally they they, okay, well, how do I, how do I go ahead and, and, and wrap my arms around these additional applications? So again, eight makes sense. I think because uh, if you care about doing a good job, they'll have the right amount of energy and focus to do it. Definitely. I, I remember when I was probably a sophomore, so I <laughs> hadn't had much interaction with what the actual college application looks like. I thought I would apply to 25 schools. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, why not? I think I had this illusion that it was better to apply to more schools because that means I'd have more to choose from when it came time to make a decision. But really the applications, they take a lot of time. It's not a simple mm-hmm. copy and paste most times. It, it takes effort and eight is a much more manageable number to give your all to. And then I don't mean to cast any aspersions here, but, but a lot of times when students throw out the larger number of applicants, the assumption is, well, I don't have to invest an awful lot in them now. I can apply, see where I get in, and then worry about the decision later. Well, if you do yeah. that and you're successful with 25, or a large number of them, then you have basically in your senior year from the beginning of April to the end of April to, to kind of distill all that information about the schools to which you've been admitted. And that's nuts. It's trying right. to figure out at that point, you're going to you're just going to have an awful lot going on at that point that is going to make it hard to, to do that. And then you're going to want extensions, et cetera, et cetera. I think now's the time to be thoughtful about yeah the why for each college. And when you can do that now, you put yourself in a better position to compete for admission as well. Definitely. And, you know, speaking of competing for admission and being strategic about the process, I think a lot of parents or guardians might be familiar with the terms safety schools or level schools, targets and reaches. So how should a student's list be organized in terms of those safeties, targets and reaches? Well, Elena, I'm going to take the liberty of changing the terms because I okay. think when we, when we put labels on schools, we devalue not only the school, but we devalue even more the student. What we're saying, mm-hmm. it, it, that's that's a reach and I'm not good enough. It's going to be lucky for me to get into that. Yeah. Or if, if safety means that it's really not that good, but you know, I, I'm pretty sure I can get in there. So I, I like to talk about probabilities. Mm-hmm. And the, the probabilities align with the terms, but when you when you think about probabilities, a low probability school, a high probability school, moderate probability, then I think you reduce the definitions here to an objective sense rather than a subjective sense, okay? Yeah. And so what I'm going to suggest is that that in that list of eight, students should end up with no more than two colleges or universities where the probability of admission is 40% or less. Wow, 40%. Right. At least two where the probability is 60% or greater. Mm-hmm. And then the balance will be in the 40 to 60 range. And the reason for that is a lot of times students will, will, will have the dream schools, if you will, tend to be reach schools and they'll, they'll front load their list of, of that 20 to 30. There'll be a lot of reaches in there. And they'll think, well, I'm going to, if I'm applying to eight, I'm going to figure out which of those reach schools I, I want to apply to. And they end up applying, if you think about it, in probabilities, they're applying to eight schools where the probability of admission is 40% or less. Maybe it's 20% or even 10% or less. <laughs> and that's going to lead to a lot of unhappiness at the end of the process. 
So I think if, if the students can be disciplined about focusing on reducing that number of low probabilities to two, mm. making sure there are two high probabilities, the, the two high probabilities should work out. Now, here's the thing. The, the real risk with the definitions is that when we look at, you, you mentioned the, the target or level, I talk about the, the middle 40 to 60%. There's a sense that I, I can get in there. Well, of course you can get in, but that's not a guarantee. Right. You, have, you have as good a chance of not getting in as you of getting in. And, mm -hmm. and again, students put a lot of their energy into the low probability schools, assuming that the moderately prob moderate probabilities are going to work out. And of course, I've got the high probabilities to lean on. You, you may end up not getting into the moderate probabilities if you're not paying attention. You got to show them some love as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's easy to fall into those labels. And even like you said, to start with those dream schools or those low probability schools. And it might cast a different light on the way that you go about building that college list. So that's really, really great advice. And we we actually have a blog on the SCORE blog about it too, the beginning stages of creating a college list. So it goes into more detail on those labels for any parents of gardens out there who are interested. But one of the things that I, I would just add to this is that when I talk with students privately about their college lists, and, and quite often they'll present me with a list of you know 15 to 20 or so schools, and I'll say, would you like me to handicap your chances? Mm. And do that? Sure. I mean, if, if you know what the likelihood of admission, the general selectivity of the institution is right off the bat, and you know where the student's credentials will fit relative to the the, the competition at that school, you can handicap. It's not scientific, but you can handicap it closely. For example, if the student is looking at a, an institution that admits 10% of its applicants and the student's academic credentials put her right smack on the profile for that school, you think, okay, well, I've got the numbers they want to see. What does that mean about your chances? 10%. Right. You know, and it kind of burst the bubble a little bit because their assumption is, well, I can get in there because I'm, I look like what they want. No, that just means you can compete at a rate of one out of 10. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of times I'll go down the list with the student, I'll say 10%, 5%, 3%, 15%, 12%. And I don't get halfway through the list. And somebody in the family will say, do you think we should look at more schools where the probability is higher? Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, I, this is where discipline is important. And, and it's okay to have the dream schools and to start with that in mind, but you have to be thoughtful, analytical, and realistic as you as you continue to build the list. Absolutely. And with certain applications out there, it's really easy for students to apply to lots of schools. Sure. What's the harm in sending out more applications? <laughs> On the surface, there's probably, it doesn't feel like there's any harm, but as I suggested earlier, Admission officers are trying to discern the likelihood that the student will enroll if accepted. Mm -hmm. And if a student is taking advantage of filling out one form and send it to literally dozens of schools just to see where we can get in, and as, as the thought will go, we being the, the family, we. But the, the admission officers are looking to see, you know, is this application the product of a, a thoughtful, systematic search that has led the student to, to our school? Or is this simply a one-off for the students checking to see if she can get in? Right. And so I think it's it's really important that that the student is giving a lot of considered effort to that application. Here's here's something that I think kind of encapsulates this well. When when a student applies for admission, no matter how good you are, you could be top in your class, perfect scores, everything going right. No matter how good you are, if there's any chance 
that the admission officer at that institution will look at your application as coming from a stranger, you will mm. not, you will not get it. And that can be at a 50% school. Okay. Wow. So what, what you need to be doing is giving a lot of thought to where you apply and how you apply, making sure that, that you're building those relationships that, that uh, will speak well to your chances later on. Absolutely. And I think we touched on that in our previous episode too. Oh. So go back and take a listen, but it's definitely important to be intentional and to make sure that you're not a stranger to whoever's reading your application. Exactly. Exactly. So I think another thing that may come to mind for a lot of parents or guardians is how much are these applications going to cost? So is it possible to get fee waivers for college applications? It is. And, and again, when you talk about applying to a lot of schools, it's, you know, 10 times the number of application fees that, that are involved or 20 or 30 times all those application fees. Typically, fee waivers are made available, though, to students who can demonstrate financial hardship. Mm -hmm. And the National Association of College Admission Counseling, that's the, the professional association that kind of oversees this process, including guidance counselors, college advisors, admission officers, has makes available a fee waiver request that students can use. And I encourage students who are in that situation of financial hardship. And I'm not talking about, gosh, that's going to cost us a lot of money to apply, but we just don't have it. Right. Work with the guidance counselor to make that application through the, the NACAC, if you will, to receive the fee waivers for, for college admissions. But it's it's entirely possible, yes. Yeah. And actually, if students and parents or guardians want to keep things in one place, you can discover if you qualify for a fee waiver and even request one right in score for free. Mm -hmm. And in terms of common mistakes, what are some of those common mistakes that parents or guardians can help their students avoid with making their lists? Well, I, I think one of the things that needs to be avoided is that sense that uh, selectivity is a proxy for quality. Mm. And, and when we talk about the initial list, the dream schools, the low probability, the, the reach schools, okay, the, the, the assumption is they're the best schools, okay? Right. Sometimes parents lead with that assumption. So parents have to kind of back off of that assumption themselves. But when you have a student who is parroting the parent's perception of, it's, it's really hard to get into. It must be good. As a family, step back from that and, and recognize that there are a ton of high quality places around the country that are not necessarily as well known, largely because they're not as selective. They, they don't have maybe the same prestige that, that the, the schools that you know, that the dream schools might be, but they're just as good in many cases. Right. So I think that as a family, you, you just need to stay grounded in what's important for the student and how can we find elements of that fit in institutions, even beyond those places that we we seem to regard as the best schools out there, because they may not be the best. Right. Uh, and Peter, can I also add too that it's it's important to remember that selectivity doesn't necessarily mean we take the best of the best students. So if you're not applying to a selective school, you're not the best of the best students. Selectivity is relative to the amount of applications that they're receiving. So right. Schools that are more well-known may receive more applications, which makes the pool that they're choosing from larger, which makes them more selective. Well, and, and let's add another layer to that consideration. Most students applying to most schools, including the, the most selective schools, most students are good. Mm -hmm. 
about 90% of the students who apply to any school in the country self-select themselves into that applicant pool because they, they fully believe they can do the work and they can demonstrate they can do the work given the chance. So when a school is admitting 5% of its applicants out of an applicant pool where 90% are qualified and can do the work, you, you can see, it's, to your point, it's not a matter of sorting out the bad candidates from the good candidates. It's having to split hairs multiple times among the good candidates. Absolutely. Yeah. So and, and with, with that in mind, I think that, that moms and dads, you need to help your student understand that, that there will be viability among institutions outside of that dream school group. And yeah. be disciplined about helping your student look at places that might not be quite as well known, might not be quite as selective, but will be just as good. And you can prove that or the student can prove that by doing the research that we talked about in one of our earlier podcasts, doing the deep dive into the institution you'd be amazed at, at what you can learn about a particular school. And then I think one of the mistakes that students make is that they become so preoccupied with a particular school or a set of dream schools that they fail to show the right amount of love to the other schools that mm -hmm. they, they might acknowledge, okay, Peter, I'm going to do uh, a list of eight, but you know, <clears throat> it's pretty clear that, that these two or three uh, are, are my favorites and they're going to get all my love. Uh -uh. They should get love, but schools on your list, four, five, six, seven, and eight need to get the same amount of love because at the end of the process, they're going to be important to you. And right. if you don't seem to them as though you're important to them at that point, they aren't going to admit you. So it can be very, very frustrating. You know, your chances aren't great at the low probability schools, but if you're not paying attention to the mid probabilities, you're going to be out of luck there as well. Right. Oof. Yep. That Oof, it's... Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's an oof moment, but it's it's really something to keep in mind and to reframe in this process because it's easy to get caught up in everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I'm also wondering, a lot of parents of gardens must have heard this phrase, early decision. What is early decision and how important is it to have an early decision college? That's a really good question. Now, early decision is an application option that many selective institutions offer to, to students in, in the process. And that option is basically saying, listen, you know, if, if, if you apply early decision with us and we accept you, you're in, mm. you're making a, a one-off decision. You may look at dozens of schools, but when you apply early decision, you're saying you're my true love. You're where I want to be. Okay. So as the student, you know, you take me, I'm going to withdraw all those other applications yeah, I might have even been accepted at some of those other schools. I might have been given a scholarship at some of the, those other schools, but because I'm applying early decision to your school, I love you more than anything else. I'm going to withdraw all of my other considerations and come to your school. That's early decision. Wow. And and it's important to colleges because colleges in terms of becoming more selective, this gets more complicated more so than we want to do in this podcast, but but colleges are considering yield on offers of admission, and they can become more selective by bringing more high yield students into the class. Mm -hmm. And and with early decision, the yield is a hundred percent. You admit one to get one, right? So you can understand why colleges like early decision. The more early decision students they get at a hundred percent yield, the fewer regular admission students they need to admit at a, at a yield of maybe twenty percent or less. Right. So 
by my manipulating the size of the early decision cohort, a college can become more selective, not better, but more selective. And, and so at any rate, early decision is important to colleges. And for a lot of students, it's an important application option. And, and here's why. When an admission officer is looking at an early decision candidate, the question that goes through the mind of the admission officer is this. If this student were to be a regular decision candidate, do we think we might admit him in regular mm -hmm. decision? And if we think we might admit the student in regular decision, we'll take him in early decision. So in other words, we're willing to bend the bar down a little bit, make some concession because oh. Oh, we get a student to enroll who's going to be a viable candidate for us. So statistically, a student's chances of getting into it, most institutions will be better by 20 to 25% through early decision. Wow. Yeah, that's exactly. And a lot of times people hear that and they say, wow, we need to find an early decision school. No, you don't. What you need to do is be thoughtful, intentional, systematic, and looking at a large list of schools, bringing it to a short list by September. And if during that process, one of those schools consistently stands out as a number one, then, then you consider early decision. But I think it's a mistake to start the process by saying we need to find an early decision school because then the emphasis is falling in the wrong place in the decision-making. So, but early decision can be a very helpful element of, of a student's planning process here, particularly for a school that might be a first choice. Wow. I, I actually can't stop nodding my head because that is such important information. And I think what you said about dwindling down that college list and then seeing the school that still stands out after all this time and going for it, if you really want it versus saying, you know what, I'm not sure about my chances of getting into this school, but I'm going to apply early decision because mm -hmm. maybe then I'll get in. Mm -hmm. Might not be the best choice. Mm -hmm. Also, if I remember correctly from when I was applying to college, early decision is a, a contractual obligation. Mm -hmm. So you're signing a contract with that school. Is that correct? It's not quite a contract. They're, you're signing an agreement. Mm -hmm. I'll talk about it. And, and I'm glad you used the term because I think there's a misperception that that it is a contract of, of, of a legal nature, but it's an agreement. And when you apply early decision, the student is signing the agreement saying, I understand that if you take me, I'm coming. Mm -hmm. And the mom or the dad signs the same agreement saying, we've talked about this. We understand the implications. If you accept her, she's coming. And then yeah. the guidance counselor signs it and says, you know what? We've had everybody in the same room. We've reviewed the terms and, and, and agreements here. They understand everything's going to be fine. So okay. signatures on it, which gives the institution high level of confidence that, 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 yes, the student will come. So a lot of times I'll hear this. Well, what happens if we get in early decision and then decide not to go? Right. But, and this is to the term contract. There is nothing legally binding the student to go. Okay. There is something morally and ethically binding the student. Right. right. And, and, and so here's the outcome. You know, if a student defaults on, on that commitment, it will be that student's legacy at her high school that mm -hmm. is going to be hurt because heaven help any other student from that high school who wants to apply regular or early decision to that institution because the admission officer at that institution are going to say, we can't trust applicants coming from that school. Their guidance counselors don't have a handle on what's going on. Wow. So if you default on an early decision commitment, it, you may be able to waltz away and it doesn't hurt you at all, but Students who come in years that follow, you know, they're the ones who get hurt. Okay. So, I mean, 
all that to say, it's not to sway you away from doing early decision, but it is a big commitment if you decide to. You got it. You, you you have to be absolutely dead certain that this is your forever place. It's like a, I used to say it's like marriage, but in our country, marriage isn't a forever thing for <laughs> But But theoretically, it should be that forever thing. That, that, that you, there will be no contingent factors that, that change the direction of your decision-making. Yep. Okay. And my note before I move on to our final question is, for those parents of gardens out there who are thinking, is early decision the same thing as early action? No, it is not. Early action does not involve that agreement, and your student can apply to a lot of early action schools. Well, that's right. Early action is a different animal. The similarity is that the student can follow the same calendar for applying early action as one would follow early decision. Typically, the, the deadlines are in October, November of the senior year, and then there's a, about a four to six week turnaround period in decision making. With early action, though, what you're saying to the institution is, yeah, I like you guys. I'm not ready to make a commitment yet, but I really like you guys. Can can If I give you all my stuff, can you tell me whether you're going to take me? Right. Which is nice because the benefit to the student in early action is peace of mind. Mm-hmm. The student is dealing with a, a number of low probability schools. Early action can help kind of clear the thought process with, with those schools. And of course, if the student's admitted early action, wow, this is going to be good. If you're not, well, okay, now I know and you can move on. Now, I mentioned with early decision, the question is, if we were to see you as a regular candidate, how would we respond? Well, same as there's a similar consideration with early action. If the student is applying early action, the admission officer will say something like this. If you were to be a regular decision candidate, do we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you will be one of our superstar candidates? Ooh. So in other words, they're not bending the bar down. They're raising the expectations. And, and why? They're not going to give up an offer of admission to a student who might be substandard academically. They only are going to do it for the students who are going to be top of the class. Okay. There's a different kind of assumption than when students apply early action. And, and by the way, I know you didn't ask, but I'll, I'll just offer this as well. The outcomes for an early decision or an early action application will be acceptance, which is always good news, denial, game over, game right. over, or deferral. Now, with early decision, deferral means, okay, eh, we're we're going to need to look at some more information and we'll consider you again with the regular candidate pool with early decision deferral, you now become a free agent. You are no longer bound to enroll. If we Ooh. take you later, you might choose another school. That deferral frees you to do that. If you are deferred early action, again, your, your credentials are put back into the candidate pool. But a lot of times students assume that the deferral early action means I don't have a chance of getting in. No. It, it, frankly, the deferral early decision means your chances aren't that great. But with early action just means you weren't one of the superstars. You might be one of the okay. good candidates, but you're not one of the superstars. So do a good job with your application. See what happens. Peter, this is like game theory. <laughs> well, I, I do a program called the admission game. <laughs> <laughs> Where it all kind, of, all kind of expresses itself in this way. That's right. <laughs> so, Peter, my last question is, any final thoughts about the college list for our listeners out there? Yeah. When we talk about lists, I think it's important for moms and dads to recognize that the list your student starts with is rarely going to be the list she finishes with. 
Mm-hmm. And that's because reality will settle in over the course of this process. And that's not to suggest that that, that initial list was a bad list. It just means that there were probably some expectations that that weren't likely to be met. And then as, as time goes on, the student begins to to reassess the importance of other schools on the list. So but I, I think it's important as a parent in this process to to remember that the outcome of this admission process, everything that happens at the end of the day, will not define your child. Mm. Moreover, it does not define your success as a parent. And I think parents like to be able to talk about where my kid's going to go to school. At the end of the day, what you need to remember as a parent is that your love and support is unconditional in the process, that whatever happens doesn't diminish the power of the relationship you have with your child and the power of the potential they have into the future. So you need to be expressing that consistently with them through this process, because as I say, they're watching you for bodily and verbal cues about whether they're doing the right thing. Wow. Oh, that's really great advice. And I think it's it's really important to have that love and support reiterated throughout the process, because just as much as you're adjusting as a parent or guardian, your student is adjusting a lot as well, too. So I love that advice. Good, good. And, and again, have fun. We're getting to the short list of colleges, making the applications. There's going to be stress along the way, but allow yourselves to, to smile and, and enjoy the experience. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for this really great advice, Peter. You're quite welcome. It's fun. Fun to talk about. It really is. (laughs) And listeners, especially parents and guardians, you are not going to want to miss our next episode. We'll be talking about Financial Aid 101 and the myths, facts, and strategies that you need to know to make sure you're getting the financial aid your family needs. See you next time. Take care.